Welcome to the latest edition of the Moses and Methuselah weekly podcast. My name is Jonathan Davis, and each week I sit down with my battle-scarred but indomitably optimistic investment manager friend Peter Silent to chew over the latest developments in the markets and debate what they might mean for governments, investors and taxpayers. This week, Peter, I think we should definitely start by looking back at what's been happening in the financial markets and contrasting that perhaps to what's been uh, happening with the virus, about which we're all obviously now so preoccupied. The number of cases worldwide has passed uh, 1.7 million and 100,000 deaths and continues to grow, uh, though not necessarily at the same rate in all countries. Meanwhile, however, the stock market in the last week has had what the Wall Street Journal said was its best weekly performance since 1974. In other words, share prices have recovered uh, quite significantly over the course of the week. So perhaps we should start by just saying, why is that happening? Jonathan, you're quite right. And I think it is a bit of a mystery. However, if you think back, um, the mystery subsides. So you've had a deterioration in the health uh, scare and the deterioration, as you just said, in the coronavirus situation, which is very disheartening. But at the same time, you've had an improvement in financial market conditions. And this improvement has manifested itself in various ways. Not only have share prices risen and set that record that you, that you mentioned, but what is equally important, if not more so, is that the bond markets have started to return to normality Borrowers have come out and lenders have come out at the same time, especially in the corporate bond market. So companies are daring to go back and borrow money and lenders are daring to go in and make these bond investments. The other thing that's happened, which is very important, is that the fear gauge or the volatility level of financial markets has has fallen. Uh, which has injected a certain degree of certainty, a certain degree of certainty, if I can put it that way, into the markets. As we know, markets dislike uncertainty. And as the healthcare picture is deteriorating, but at the same time, there is hope that there will be a peaking of the viral infections and of the tragic deaths, this could maybe give an early indication into the economic hit uh, that is going to be apparent from the coronavirus. So you had a deterioration in the health situation, but you had an improvement in financial markets. So uh, if I could put it from another way, perhaps so the same way, but in different words, I mean, markets looking forward, obviously, to what's going to happen in the future. Uh, and they've removed one of the, or at least they appear to have believed that they can see some kind of end in sight to the to the spread of the epidemic and therefore some prospect of a return to greater economic normality, as you say, uh, within a foreseeable future. So instead of just staring into, if you like, into an abyss where we don't know what the outcome is, we at least now we know that the abyss is only so deep, to put it that way, and we can take some comfort from that. Of course, it's fair to say also, I think that while the markets have recovered, uh, they're still significantly down. People are significantly worse off in terms of if you're in the equity markets and they were at the start of the year, we have recovered some of the ground, but not all of the ground so far. 
Uh, and the bond markets, of course, as you say, have begun to function more, more properly again, which is also encouraging. So the question really, I suppose, we've seen in previous cases where markets fall very sharply, precipitously like this, uh, there's always some kind of rally in them anyway at some point, and we talk about the famous dead cat bounce and things like that. Um, so we can't be certain that we've actually got through the worst of this or that work it, markets won't see something uh, worse again coming forward, but it gives us some grounds for optimism. Would that be a fair summary from your point of view? I think it is a very fair summary because one of the dangers that investors have to try and confront is the fact that bear markets, the more bear markets develop, the more bearish participants become. And that's the, if you like, the negative spiral. But as we discussed last week, personally, I don't believe that this is a bear market. It's a stock market collapse, which was the result of an unexpected event, which caught everybody unawares, rather than the traditional bear market, which arises from uh, rising interest rates and which a bear market which has a grinding effect on investors. And so every time you make, take a decision, it usually turns out to be wrong in the short term. This is slightly different or very different in that all the authorities, be they the monetary authorities or the fiscal authorities, have opened up all the spigots. And I think what happened in the week that we've seen, whether it's in America or in Japan or in Europe, you've had the central banks rolling out and confirming the rollout of and developing the rollout of all the bazookas. For example, the Bank of England is now putting at the disposal of the government the Ways and Means facility, whereby the government can borrow directly from the Bank of England. And the Federal Reserve have done similar things in the USA, and the Bank of Japan is expected to do the same thing. So that has a very powerful effect because it means that the price of money is likely to stay lower for longer. And that is bound to underpin uh, sentiment. Now, whether this is a dead cat bounce or not remains to be seen. Personally, I don't think it's a dead cat bounce because the losses or the paper losses suffered by the investors since the beginning of this stock market collapse are pretty much aligned to the economic damage and the earnings, the corporate earnings damage that is going to be more and more visible as time goes on. But that's, as I said before, uncertainty is slowly being replaced by the certainty of bad news. So we know that there will be bad news. It's factored in or baked in to share prices. Volatility has come down very substantially, and bond markets are slowly, surely uh, being resuscitated. And those are the ingredients for concluding that it is probably not a dead cat bounce. Well, let's hope so indeed. Um, but I have to, I suppose, add in here that the, if you read the, uh, the newspapers and you follow the media, which is obviously covered in the wall-to-wall -wall coverage of, of this uh, virus, there's almost nothing else on the news at all at the moment, unless you look very carefully. But I'd like to contrast that with some of the views that we're hearing from you know, distinguished uh, academics 
operating in the, what we what sometimes call the dismal science of economics. And I'd like to just quote you a couple of them, um, which is, here is uh, Harvard professor uh, Rogoff. We will soon remember the 2008 crisis as merely a dry run for the catastrophe now unfolding, now underway. And he's predicting uh, an impact on the economy, which is worse than 2008. Uh, another quite well-known economist in the UK said he's been producing economic forecasts for 45 years, um, and he's never yet produced one reluctantly or agonized, he says, as much over one as terrible as this one. And he's predicting that GDP in the UK is going to fall by 11% and unemployment is going to fall by 8% and that the public sector borrowing is going to balloon to 110 billion. So even if you're right, if the markets are right that they've actually seen at least an end to the uncertainty and we're no longer looking into an abyss, there's still an awful lot of bad news going to come through if these forecasts are correct, which of course is a big question. Yes, I quite agree with that. And again, there are a lot of ingredients to what you've just said. And I would like to suggest that we put the government indebtedness problem to one side just for the moment, and we analyze how likely it is that today's economic shock is comparable to past economic, economic shocks in their nature. And I would say that they're probably not comparable because what we've got today is a conflict between a supply shock and a demand shock. And if you remember, this coronavirus started in China and there was an immediate supply shock while the demand was still in place. And as the Chinese situation improved much earlier than the Western situation of the coronavirus started to improve, you could see a resumption of normality of the Chinese economy. And therefore, the supply shock was alleviated at the same time as the demand shock worsened. So if you look today at China, I'm not saying it's completely normal again, the economy, but the supply shock has certainly been reduced. Uh, whereas here, the demand shock has been accentuated by the lockdowns. And the hope has to be that as the lockdown eventually uh, is replaced by the first elements of normality, that the demand shock will also subside. So it's very difficult to make judgments, which of course professors, economic professors do, about the numbers. Will there be a 10% contraction in GDP? Or not? Will it be 20%? Will it be 5%? We just don't know. But we should take our cue from the markets. And those markets are telling us that once the emotional side, uh, if you put that aside, if you look at the, the actual expected e economic developments for the next 12 months or two, I would have thought that the conflict between the supply shock and the demand shock will subside as well, and normality will resume probably sooner than what the professors predict. Well, I can't uh, resist uh, uh, repeating one of my favorite quotes, which comes from the great uh, J.K. Galbraith, which is uh, the economist who wasn't always right, but he, uh, he certainly wrote very well and came up with some telling phrases, and he said, uh, 
the reason that economists make forecasts is not because they know, but because they're asked. And uh, I think there's a lot of truth in that. They are asked to produce these forecasts, and of course, uh, they do acknowledge the uh, the variations and the, uh, the where they could be wrong. Um, but they always come up with a number which people seize on. So you're absolutely right about that. Um, what do you think, though? It's impossible to know, as you say, precisely how this is going to pan out, but the markets have taken a stance today. Um, what do you think, though, in the shorter term? There's a big issue around at the moment, which is, leaving on side for one moment the issue of what governments should be doing in terms of general policy, but there is a specific issue around what they've been doing in relation to dividends, a subject which is very dear to your heart and indeed to my heart and to all investors' hearts. Uh, and we've seen some quite draconian action by governments in more than one country. And uh, this is a very worrying uh, precedent, I would say, Peter. I completely agree with you that this is a very worrying precedent. And regarding this, this topic of what I call dividend interference, I would say that there are three parts to this question. The first part um, is whether governments can and should dictate to the private sector what the private sector should do with its profits. So the argument is often heard that companies that request government loans should not use these to pay dividends. If it were grants instead of loans, I'm saying, then governments could, I suppose, attach conditions. But of course, grants are not loans. And loans today, whether at subsidized rates or not, are in any case very cheap and likely to remain so. And therefore, governments, in my opinion, have no right to dictate to private companies how to deploy their profits. That's the first part. The second part, of course, uh, is crucial, and that's about the pensioners whose funds urgently need income because of the restrictions on investments that they all suffer from. And so by ordering banks uh, who are in the main line of fire to suspend dividends purely for the political reasons of attracting votes and thereby harming pensioners, I believe that governments are acting very irresponsibly. And then the third part to this question is that it would, it would be bad enough if the dividends of 2020 were ordered to be cut. But in fact, the governments are, if you like, retroactivating this measure back to 2019, to the 2019 dividends, even where the shares have gone ex-dividend, where bank shares have already announced their dividends. And so um, the, the sad reality is that by dictating uh, what they should do with their dividends, the governments are behaving like banana republics. Can I remind you that the definition of a banana republic is a regime which orders a new law to be acted upon retroactively. So I don't think that it is right that dividends uh, should be dictated to by the government. Right. Well, that's, uh, <clears throat> I think, a very understandable point of view you put forward there. I think, obviously, if you're a politician, it doesn't look quite that way, does it? You're trying to uh, introduce a range of uh, measures to deal with a crisis, and you uh, have to take cognizance of the fact that uh, some people will feel pretty aggrieved if they see 
money going to shareholders that uh, they think could be better spent in other ways. So, and, and in particular, if one looks at, for example, something like the airlines, okay, let's just take the airlines for a moment. Um, I believe it's, it, the situation is that something like Delta Airlines, one of the American airlines, you know, has repurchased about 40% of its shares in the last five years and increased its debt from $10 billion to $29 billion. Uh, so if you're thinking that they're somehow going to be, you know, given money uh, or effectively allowed to pay dividends at this point, I think that would be politically quite difficult to sell. So I'm not defending what the governments have done, but I'm saying that perhaps you can understand it in terms of uh, uh, political realities. No doubt you're right. And of course, the media latches onto this. I think buybacks that you mentioned quite rightly, because they're also in the line of fire, are a slightly different uh, topic. Share buybacks should be viewed like an acquisition. Whether you use your money to acquire shares of your own company or to buy shares of another company, it is a little bit like an acquisition. And acquisitions can be sound, can be unsound, can be done at the right level, um, and can be done at the wrong level if the price is too high. What is, what is even more dangerous is when money is being borrowed for companies to buy back their own shares. So the share buyback topic is, is very important as well. Um, what is linked to all this, and you mentioned airlines quite rightly, is of course the creeping nationalization in part or in whole of swathes of the industry. And airlines, of course, are the first ones who are likely to be, to be nationalized or part nationalized. So I am a great skeptic of share buybacks. And I think that share buybacks should probably be frowned upon, but not necessarily for the reasons that you read in the media. <laughs> Very good. Very good. Well, as you say, the politicians have a, have a difficult task uh, to some extent. I mean, one thing, though, that might happen, uh, which is relevant to, uh, or which certainly will happen, I would say, is that uh, rather than, than stopping dividends or restricting dividends, uh, governments are going to start taxing companies more, are they not, at some stage? That must be a significant risk in the, in the wake of what's going to happen in terms of the ballooning debt that the governments are issuing now, and so on. We don't quite know how that's all going to work out. But I suspect it's going to be, there's going to be a cost attached for future generations uh, in terms of tax paid. I'm afraid my concluding remark is that you are quite right and that the reality is going to be even worse because there's no such thing as a free lunch. And when that free lunch costs a few trillion dollars, then somebody is going to have to pay. Payback time is going to come down like a fist without any question at all, whether that starts next year or the year after. But as and when government indebtedness rises and rises and rises, of course, the taxpayer is going to have to foot the bill sooner or later and to a greater or lesser extent, in my opinion, to a greater extent, unfortunately. I think that is the case. I mean, it's, it's one thing, the numbers that are being bounded around in terms of the amount of extra debt that the government's going to issue or governments are going to issue. I mean, we've become a bit immunized, if I can use that word, to the, to the numbers involved, but they are significant even in today's world. We're talking about 
you know, billions and billions of pounds and dollars and euros. Uh, and they're very big sums. And I think people do not have any real sense of whether that they just feel at the moment governments are doing what they can. Central banks are doing everything they can. Uh, but the amount of uh, the amount of uh, injections of, of, of cash and of debt uh, are really significant, on, even on a historic scale. And they will become perpetualized. I don't think there is any chance of this entire debt ever being repaid. And it's very easy for politicians to incur debt in the knowledge that they won't be tasked with repaying the debt. It'll be the next generation's of politicians. So I think there will be a creeping perpetualization of government debt. That is without doubt, in my opinion. Yes, I can remember. It was only a few years ago that uh, the UK government finally repaid the last of its debt from the Napoleonic Wars, which uh, which took place in the early 19th century. So you're probably right. I mean, <laughs> people are going to be still paying for this in, uh, in, in, uh, in decades rather than, uh, rather than in single years. And the German government only recently repaid the reparation payments that they had to pay that came after the First World War. Yes, so absolutely. So there you are. Yeah. Absolutely. So there are going to be consequences of that. I look forward to discussing some of those with you in, in future weeks, Peter. Sure. Um, but at the moment, we're taking some heart from the, what's been happening in the financial markets. Um, but having a rather uh, wary, we have to keep a very wary eye on what happens on the on the government spending and indeed nationalisation front. So, Peter, well, we'll look forward to speaking again next week, and uh, let's hope that the news continues to improve in some form in the event. I look forward to that very much, Jonathan. See you next week. Indeed. Bye bye. Bye bye. You have been listening to the Moses and Methuselah Weekly Podcast hosted by Jonathan Davis and Peter Silen. These podcasts are independently edited and produced and available for distribution every Saturday. You can subscribe to them on most leading podcast channels or by signing up on the Moneymakers or M&M podcast website. Please note that these podcasts are provided for information and background only and should not be regarded as constituting professional investment advice.